It's uh, good to be back with you. I was down in the um, Bay Area last weekend preaching at Cedar Grove. As many of you know, their pastor is uh, battling stage four colon cancer. And uh, he's gone through chemo, gone through uh, surgery, and just really struggling. And so we've been praying for Pastor Joel. Um, But uh, every time I go away and preach down there, it makes me appreciate you guys uh, so much. And it's good to be here with you today. Hope you're doing well. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll dive into uh, the passage. Father, I thank you for this morning. Just, you know, I thank you. We, we talk a lot around here about the gospel, about um, the incarnation, about uh, Christ as God in flesh. But just this time of year is always special as we think about the birth of Christ and the, um, how amazing that is and how it changed history and how for us it's changed our lives. And this morning as we uh, dive into your word and think about uh, your love and what scripture teaches us, um, I pray that we'll hear this morning uh, what we need to hear from you. It's good for us to be reminded of your love. It's good for us to be reminded of of how it has changed us. And I pray this morning uh, that we'll grow in our understanding and appreciation of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. So we're talking about love today, and it's good to be loved, and uh, many of you could share stories about how you've been loved and how that love has changed your life. When I think about how love changes a life, I, I often think back to college, and it was back in college where I met uh, Christy, uh, my wife, and, um, you know, I, we actually knew each other through mutual friends. And so for like the first year that I knew her, I didn't really know her. Um, I knew her friends, she knew my friends, and a lot of times we would be in the same place at the same time. But we didn't really know each other, have a relationship with one another. And eventually though, you know, I kind of started to take notice of her and, um, and uh, just really began. So I'll admit it, I became very infatuated uh, with Chrissy. Um, and some, somehow, somewhere along the line, we began to have conversations and do some stuff together and somewhere, and I can't tell you exactly where, I went from infatuation to just really loving her. And I remember the first time that I told her that I loved her and she wasn't quite there yet. So, you know, that often happens and it's a little awkward, but I was willing to kind of put it out there and, and told her I loved her. And that was a, you know, that was a great day. That was a pretty monumental day for, for me. But I'll tell you what was even better was the day that she told me that she loved me. And that's a different kind of day when someone tells you that they love you because um, you can choose to love anyone you want, right? You, you can love anyone. Um, you can choose to love even an enemy. Um, and that's your choice, and you can do that. But you can't make anyone love you. You can't make anyone return your love. That's their choice, and that's a gift that they can give to you. And there's, it, there's something about that that it, it's just life-changing. It can just be life-transforming. And today we're, we're going to talk about that, about love. So we're in this series called Better, and we're talking about some of the better passages from the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So we've talked about the fact that wisdom is better than much gold and silver and why that is. We talked in the second week about how God's word is better than wealth. We talked about how taking advice is better than thinking that you know it all. We talked about the fact that trusting God is better than trusting in anyone or anything else. We talked about how loving relationships are better than a feast with hate. 
about how integrity is better than crooked gain. Two weeks ago, I talked about how a funeral is better than a party. And last week, Pastor Scott talked about how humility is better than self-promotion. And today, we're going to talk about love, about God's love for us. And our passage is found in Psalm 63. And before I read you uh, verse 3, I wanted to just kind of give you a little bit of context, just a little, in Psalm 63. And somebody noted I had a typo with the zero there, but actually that's not a typo. You get that sometimes in the Psalms and when there's a, a little kind of, you know, prologue to it, which is what we get in verse zero, where it says a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So we get a little context there about who wrote this Psalm and when they wrote it. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. We know this was written by King David who had to flee from Jerusalem because his son Absalom had raised up a, a, an army had raised up some following, had, had actually been kind of engineering this for years. And now he was marching towards Jerusalem. And David had to flee with his family and loved ones and others who would go with him. And they end up, they're, they're out in the desert. They're, they're refugees now. It's hot. It's dry. They don't have enough water to drink. David is, is weary, and I'm sure that he is just sad. He's just sad over the fact that his son is, has raised up his fist against against David and wants to take him down and and in the middle of all this this is what David writes in verse 3 because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you now that's a pretty big statement there when he says that God's love is better than life itself because we live in a world that considers life or, or time, because in our world, that's what life is. It's time, it's minutes, it's hours um, to be the most valuable commodity that anyone can possess. Time, because our culture believes that this life is all that there is, and when it's over, it's over. So nothing is worth more to you than time. So a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about death. Seems like I talk about death a lot. Uh, I was showing you this chart that's been done. If, if you're born today, this is about how long you can expect to live, and it's the North America one that we're interested in here, which is right down here that says that the average female will live about 81 years and the average male about 75 years. And so a couple weeks ago, some of you came up afterwards and you're like, woohoo, I got a long, a lot of long way to go. I got years to burn, and some of you were looking really nervous. Uh, but of course, see, what, uh, what the secular world says is this is it. This is all there is. And when it's done, it's done. There's no more to your life. So nothing is more valuable than another day, another hour, another moment. The Greek philosopher Theophrastus says this, something kind of along this line. Time is the most valuable thing that a person can spend. So it is an interesting way to think that we are spending our days, our hours, our moments on something. Another writer said, you can always make more money, but you can never make more time. Again, saying that time itself is more valuable than money. Um, another writer said, we each have a finite amount of time, and once a moment is gone, it's gone forever. Right? You can never get that moment back. That's worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says, this life is all there is to life. But God's wisdom says, not quite. That there's more to life than this life. In fact, there's way more to life 
than this life. True wisdom is able to say, because your steadfast love is better than life itself, in any situation, at all times, my lips will praise you, even in the desert, even in the run, even as a refugee, even when somebody you love has raised their fist against you. Your steadfast love is better than life. So the question we would want to ask is, how is that true? How is the love of God better than life itself? Well, we could talk about a lot of ways in which it's better, but we'll just talk about a couple today in your notes. And we're going to kind of start at the beginning. We're going to start with God, and we're going to say this, that God is the source of love. And this is where it all begins for us. It begins with God. So if we're going to talk about love, we have to talk about God. And if we're going to talk about God, then we need to take a few moments to talk about God, about the Trinity. It's actually important that we do this. So if we want to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, and I've got in your notes, you know, we can kind of look at the classical definition. There's, there's one God who would eternally exists in, in three distinct persons, because that makes complete sense, uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, many of us have read that so many times, like, okay, I got it. We don't got it. We don't understand it, but we kind of live with it, right? Here, here's, a, I, I put another definition in there that's pretty close, but God is one in essence and three in persons. That clears it all up, right? So <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, and each person is fully God, and there's only one God. So that should clear all that up for you. Um, speaking of the Trinity and why it's so important when we're talking about all this, John Piper in The Pleasures of God writes this. From all eternity, before creation, the one reality that has always existed is God. This is a great mystery because it's so hard for us to think of God as having absolutely no beginning, just being there forever and ever and ever without anything or anyone making him be there. This is just an absolute reality that every one of us has to reckon with whether we like it or not. But this ever-living God has never been alone. He has not been, a, as some call him, a solitary center of consciousness. There has always been another who has been one with God in essence and glory, and yet distinct in personhood, there we get that Trinity thing again, so that uh, they have had a personal relationship for all eternity. He's referring here to the Trinity, saying that God has never been alone, God has never been lonely, that we would say God has always existed in perfect and loving fellowship, always for eternity. Now, one word that we sometimes use to describe the totality of God's attributes is the word holy. And if we want to break it down, then we'll start to say, you know, God is this and this and this and this. And we might say, God is eternal. That's a hard one. I always find it easy to think of something as being eternal in the future. Eternal in the past is just always a harder one for me. But God is eternal. God is omnipotent. That is, he's all-powerful. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere in every place at all time. Um, he's immutable. That is, he doesn't change in essence. He's just. He's spirit. He's many more things, but one thing is that he is love, Scripture says. In 1 John 4, 8, it tells us this, anyone who does not love does not know God because, here's why, because God is what? God is love. Now notice what it says here. It says that God is love. It doesn't say that God has love. That's not what it says. It doesn't say God contains some love. It doesn't even say God is loving. It says God is love. He is love. He is the source of love. All genuine love comes from God. 
Therefore, we could say that God defines love. Love does not define God. Now, here's why I say this, because we live in a culture in a day and age where people love to impose upon God their view of whatever they think love should be. And I hear it a lot, and it usually begins like this. People say to me, well, I believe in a God who, <laughs> there's always a red flag there, all right? So I believe, in, not I believe in a God as that God has revealed himself to me, but I believe in a God who accepts and loves everyone. I hear that a lot. That's the God I believe in, a God who accepts everyone, uh, as long as they're genuine, as long as they're sincere. I hear that a lot, because obviously nothing uh, wicked has ever been done by someone who was sincere about that. Or people say, I believe in a God who places no demands on anyone. I believe in a God who says, you just be yourself. Whoever you want to be, be yourself. I believe in a God who places no commands, no agenda, who never judges, who never condemns, who doesn't call people to repent, just a God who loves. Whatever it is that you decide that that means. And I, I say this because my point is this, God defines love. You don't define it, I don't define it, culture doesn't define it, God defines it, and thankfully, he did it very well in his word. So we only have to read the word of God and see what that looks like. And his love does not exist in a vacuum. God's love lives in harmony with all of his other attributes. So for instance, if we want to talk about the fact that God is just, that God deals with, with, with sin, and, and we believe that God's love and his justice live in harmony with each other, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But getting back here to just the fact that God is the source of love, um, we can ask the question then, why did God create us? And I've heard all sorts of crazy theories about why God created us. I think Jonathan Edwards put it well. He said this, it was the mutual love of the persons of the Trinity, that's why we started there, uh, that spilled out of heaven and formed all of creation. In eternity past within the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, God created a race of beings out of which he would love and redeem those who would in turn love him forever. But we know the story. We sinned against God, and sin is so egregious that Scripture says the wages of sin is what? It's death, and phones ringing, and all that kind of stuff. It's a, like, it's a big deal, right? Sin's a big deal. And if God operated only on the basis of his justice, then he would simply convict everyone of their sin. But his love provided a remedy for sin, Jonathan Lehman, who's an expert in New Testament Greek, says this. People like to say that God's love is unconditional. However, God's love is actually conditional. God's love met the conditions of God's justice. Jesus' loving self-sacrificial death fulfilled the terms laid out by the Old Testament that says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So what we might say is, not that God's love is unconditional, but as Lehman puts it, God's love is contra-conditional. That is, God's love is contrary to what we deserve. What we deserve is justice, but what God gives us through faith is grace. He offers us forgiveness, not what we deserve, but what we don't deserve. It's contra-conditional. I, I love that term. In 1 John 4, 9, it tells us this, in this the love of God was made manifest, was like right there in our face is what that means, among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And, and this is love. Here we go. Not that we have loved God, and this is a big point I want to make today, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation 
for our sin. So just breaking this down a little bit, that word love is a word you might know. It's a word agape. It, we think of it as self-sacrificing service. In your notes, it's the, the love granted to someone who needs to be loved, not necessarily to someone who is worthy of love or someone who is even lovable. And then it talks about propitiation, which means a covering or, or an atonement for our sin. So the point is Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, and when we trust in him, we receive not what we deserve, but what we do not deserve. And contra, right, that's where that comes from. Contra conditionally gives us grace. He gives us forgiveness. And the incarnation of Christ, which is something we talk a lot about this time of year, is the, the ultimate manifestation of that for, for us. And when we believe, notice what it tells us in Romans 5. God's love has been poured has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In fact, in the context, what we three see is the entire Trinity is involved here in pouring God's love into our hearts as believers. But here's the point. It comes from Him. It comes from God. He is the source of it. We can only love God if we take the love he has given us and give it back to him. We can only love others as we take the love God has given us and, and extend it to others. John MacArthur says this. He says, the triune God designed man as a relational being. Man's creation in the image of God gave him self-awareness and the ability to think rationally to appreciate beauty, acquire wisdom, feel emotion, and understand morality. But the most significant aspect of the image of God is seen in man's capacity to love others, as demonstrated through his relational fellowship with God and with other human beings. Though only a shadow, human love for God and others is a reflection of the perfect inter-Trinitarian love that has characterized God from the beginning of time. You'll notice I quoted a lot of people in that first point. It's because I have to. It's too deep for me. So, uh, but the point I want to make is this, that God is love and the source of love, which takes us to our second point. And that is, I put it this way, God's love is steadfast. Now, I looked for a better word, but I couldn't find one. It turns out the word God used in his word was a pretty good word. So let me ask you this question. Like when you think in your life of the people in your life that you have a relationship with, how many people would you say love you contra conditionally? That they love you contrary to what you deserve because you're not a perfect person. You sin, I sin, none of us are perfect. But who in your life loves you contra conditionally, no matter what you do, say, decide, no matter how you blow it, again and again and again? And it's rare to find someone like that because our love, for all of us, our love has limits because we're not perfect. And in my own life, you know, I've had people at some point who have said to me, you know, I'm done with you and walk away. And, you know, it kind of creates trust issues for us, right? We start to wonder, I wonder who else is going to leave me. I wonder who else is going to reject me. And sometimes we can begin to project that on God. But that's not the kind of love that God has for us. Again, in Psalm 63, 3, it tells us this. Because your, and this is one word in the Hebrew, steadfast love. Hesed is the word. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Steadfast love, hesed, it means goodness, kindness, uh, unchanging love. It describes God's um, love that he has uh, for us. It's, it's sure, it's dependable, it, it never fails. But the key is this, God's love is based on God is based on God's character. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on you being good enough. It's not based on you earning it. 
It's based on God. This is really important for us to understand and something that's hard for us sometimes to get a hold of. Again, we can think of a story I mentioned recently and that is uh, Peter. So you, you think about Peter for a minute. Peter's a disciple of Jesus. He um, has been following Christ for three years. He's, he's been loved by Christ. He's, he's heard Christ teach um, amazing parables, Sermon on the Mount. He's been discipled by him. He's seen him, Christ work miracles and walk on water and, and, and all of this stuff Peter has witnessed. And then um, as Jesus is, is on trial um, and as they're preparing him for crucifixion, you might remember the story where Peter denies even knowing Christ, even knowing him. After three years, he says, I don't even know the man that you're talking about. And yet Jesus tells him before he did it. You remember this? He tells him before he did it, he said, Peter, you're gonna deny knowing me, but I've already prayed for you, and you will be restored. And I love this picture of, of, of how Jesus loves Peter contra conditionally knowing what he's going to do this is not based on us God's love for us is based on him and his character and that's why it is steadfast and never fails in Romans 8 it talks a lot about this some words you're probably familiar with in Romans 8 28 it says and we know that for those who love God so let me just mention here we go back and remember where love comes from so when it talks about us loving God, we understand it's really talking about the fact that God has given us love to give back to him. And for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It says that God works for the good, everything for those who love him. As one writer said, he orchestrates all the circumstances of life and all their wonder, beauty, and even difficulty, even the hard stuff, to reveal the many evidences of his love. Going on in Romans chapter eight, it says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's looking back on a time in history where it was very dangerous, life-threatening to be one who followed God. He says, but even in that, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us who loved us, not that we loved him, but he loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and just in case, you know, Paul says it didn't cover it all, nor anything else at all in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the what? Love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's because of his love. So a few months ago, I went to the dentist to get my teeth cleaned and like I regularly do, and then it was time for my yearly checkup. And so, you know, the dentist took the x-rays and then uh, I hear him around the corner and he's looking at the x-rays with dental technician. And he's like, uh-oh, that's like never a good. So I like going to the dentist in the first place. <laughs> Not what I ever want to hear, right? And he's like, well, look at that, look at that. And I can hear, oh, that. And so he comes in, he's like, well, so here's the deal. You have an infection. It's down behind the back tooth there. And I'm like, oh, I don't, you know, feel anything, so it must be fine. He's like, well, thing is, you've had a root canal there, and it looks like the root canal's gone bad, and you have an infection down there. And I'm like, well, what if we don't do anything about it? You know, what? Like, let's just say we go down that path. He's like, well, eventually it'll eat away at your jaw, and, you know, one day you'll bite something hard, and your jaw will break. And he's just trying to scare me. 
And so, you know, I'm like, well, what are, what are we gonna do? And he's like, well, I'll need to send you to an endodontist and, you know, basically he'll redo the root canal, drill down. And I'm just, I'm just like, so I remember the last time I had a root canal and it was, it was excruciating, all right? I, it was like I could feel the whole thing and I was just sitting in the chair going, I can't do that again. He's like, look, you're not gonna feel anything. I've heard that before. And it's like, no, you've already had a root canal. There's nothing to feel. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not buying it. So anyways, sends me to the endodontist. And uh, he's like, so do you want something for, you know, for pain? I'm like, are you are you kidding me? Like, what have you got? You know, <laughs> take it all. And so he's like, but you're not going to feel anything. I'm like, no, I, you know what? Give it all to me. So anyways, he knows me. And so I'm sitting there. It's a two-hour procedure as they're kind of redoing everything and, and vacuuming out in there and stuff, you know. And I'm just thinking to myself the whole time sitting in the chair with the whole thing. And, and, it, and I love, by the way, how they have conversations with you. You can't answer back or anything, you know. They're just talking to you. And, it, and you're, uh, so anyways, but I kept having this thought, you know, I wish I could believe him. I don't, but I wish I could. Because if I could believe him, it means I could just be sitting here in the chair and thinking about, you know, uh, fun stuff. And I could be, you know, meditating on scripture and I could be thinking good thoughts and, you know, what I'm going to do and all. But I can't think about any of that. All I can think is, is it hurt? Does it hurt? Does it hurt? Does it hurt? Like that's the whole experience. And I never, and then when it was done, he's like, how was it? And I'm like, yeah, I guess it was okay. Did you feel anything? No, I didn't feel anything, but I still don't trust you. But here's the thing. Some of us are, we're kind of like that with God. God makes promises to us about his providence in our life, and we're just not sure that we can trust him. Because our experience has shaped a response for us oftentimes of fear and, and anxiety. But what if, what if, we actually decided that we trusted God, that we actually trusted his promises, that we actually trusted his steadfast love for us. Imagine for a moment that not just for two hours in a dentist chair, but in problems and issues and hard times and relationships and jobs. If, what if in all of that we decided that we actually could trust God's promises to us? How would that change our day? How would that change our life? How would that change how we experience, this pro, uh, experience problems and issues and difficulties in life? See, here's the thing. Once you belong to Christ, once you are his, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because you try because you love him a lot? No, because he loves you because his love is steadfast, because he won't let anyone separate you from his love. His love is steadfast. Here's a third thing, his love is dynamic. So, somebody comes to Jesus one time and asks him a question. You're probably familiar with the question. What is the most important commandment in the Bible? And Jesus says, and you may be familiar, Mark 12, he says this, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall, what? Love, you, that's kind of the key word today. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So what he's saying is love is the most important commandment in the Bible and the second most important commandment in the Bible. But again, this isn't something you can do simply because you decide that you're going to do it. In Galatians 5, it tells us this, but the fruit of the Spirit, 
But what God produces in us through the Spirit of God in us when we are believers is, among other things, love, joy, peace, patience. And he goes on, but love, the first one there is what I want you to notice. As believers, the Holy Spirit fills us with God's love. And here's how I want to put it. I don't want to say, and that love should flow out of us, or that love can flow out of us, or that love might flow out of us. What I want to say is this, and his love must flow out. It can't not flow out. If you are a child of God, if you have been saved by the grace of God, then the Holy Spirit will place the love of God in you, and it must flow out. It can't not flow out. Back to God and to people. In 1 John 4, 19, it says this, we love because he first, he first loved us. So again, worldly wisdom will say, well, you know, you really can't love others till you learn to love yourself. You gotta get that self-love thing going. And once you get that going, then you can love other people. But here's what God's wisdom says. It says that his love empowers us to love God, to love others, and to love ourselves. It's not by us trying hard. It's by us being filled with the love of God. And that love, I would say, is progressive, right? Sanctification is progressive. So none of us love perfectly right now, even if you've been a Christian for many, many years. But we are loving progressively as God works in us, as he prods us, as he pushes us, as he stimulates us, as scripture says, to love and to good deeds. In 1 John 4, 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So again, it's telling us that God is the source of love. And when we are born again, God fills us with his love and it empowers us to love God and to love others. And I would venture to say that probably most of us in this room want to love better. I doubt that any of us are in here today going, I'm pretty good at love. I, I think I've got the love thing down. I could just kind of, you know, coast for the rest of my life, I think most of us would probably admit we want to love God better. We want to love, if we're married, we want to love our, our spouse better, we'd, right? We'd love to, uh, my wife's birthday was on Friday and I was, I was writing her a, a birthday card and I was just thinking about how, how much her love has meant to me and how much I love her and I, I was trying to, but I can't, have you ever tried to write a card to someone you love more than words can express? <laughs> I'm like, it's just, but I want to love her better. I, we went out to dinner with our boys last night. You know, we're sitting around a table and I'm just, I'm just thinking how much I love them and how could I love them better? What could I say to express that love? I think most of us want to love our kids better and our, our parents better and our friends better and our acquaintances. And if we've read scripture much, we would probably say we even want to love our enemies better. Jesus gives us that ability. He gives us the ability through the outpouring of the Spirit to love others. And he he shows us what it looks like as we look at his life, what it looks like and sounds like and talks like, how it you know, makes decisions and sacrifices and serves and blesses. And my point is this, none of us have to create love for God and other people. We don't, we, we can't. We simply receive the love that God has given us and we give it away. So God's love is dynamic. It, it changes us, it fills us. And the last thing that I wanna point out today, and again, I, there's so much we could say about love and we will uh, in the months to come. But the last thing I want to point out is this, that God's love defines us. This is something that I have thought about for years, this point. Hopefully I can express it uh, quickly. Um, 
So I want to take you to uh, the life of Christ. And I want to take you to, to the post, uh, a post-resurrection story. So Christ has gone to the cross. Um, he suffered. He shed his blood for our atonement. He is uh, placed in a tomb. He rises on the third day. And he begins to appear to people. And he's appeared to the disciples a couple times now. And he has this thing he likes to do where he appears to people, but they don't know who he is. And then he hangs out a little bit and then he's like, whoa, and it's me. And you know, everybody's like, oh yeah, that's awesome. I knew it was you. And, and so there's a story where there's seven of the disciples. There's only 11 now and there's seven of them and they're together. And most of them were fishermen before they became disciples. And so they go out fishing because um, they don't know where Jesus is right now. He's out doing some other stuff. And, and so they go fishing uh, one night and they don't catch any fish. And at daybreak, uh, they're out in the boat and Jesus appears on the shore. So he does that whole thing where he's like, hey guys, how's it going? And they don't know who he is and, and he knows who they are. And, and they're like, yeah, he's like, you catch any fish? No, we didn't catch any fish. And he's like, throw your net over on the, on the right side of the boat. So it's interesting. They don't question him. They just throw their nets out and they catch so much fish that they can't bring the net in. And so they're in the boat and it begins to dawn on them this is, the whole thing is familiar. And in John uh, chapter 21, verse seven, it says this. Um, now that disciple whom Jesus loved, I'm, that's what I want to talk about here as we close, but that's John, okay? And John's writing this. So he says, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped down for work and he threw himself into the sea and he swims to the shore in Peter's style, right? So then he gets to the shore, they row the boat to shore, everyone's together and they have breakfast together and then Jesus asks Peter, there's that conversation, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And there's some symmetry kind of going on there between when he had denied Christ and now Jesus is kind of restoring him. Do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. And then in verse 20, uh, in the middle of the conversation, it says, Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John again, following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So we know that it's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it's an interesting thing when you read the Gospel of John. You may have noticed that John never identifies himself as having written the book. He doesn't say, I'm John and I approve of this message. Like he doesn't do that, right? He, de- he never calls, he never says, my name's John, I did that. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, that's kind of a brash statement. It, it just sounded like he's bragging. It sounded like what he's saying is, I mean, he loved Peter, but he loved me more, you know? So that's like how it come across, but that's not exactly, it, I, I, I've come to think of it as like a name tag. So it's like John says, you know, I could identify myself if I went to a party and we all had to wear name tags. I could identify myself in a lot of ways. Like I was one of the disciples. I was one of the inner circle of disciples. Uh, I was an apostle. I wrote a whole bunch of books in the New Testament, but he doesn't. His name tag, his identity is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He refers to himself that way five times in the Gospel of John. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't identify himself as the disciple who loved Jesus. That's really important. He identifies himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Because what John understood was that it wasn't his love for Jesus that really defined him. I mean, it was important. But it was Jesus' love for him that defined him, that saved him. He would say, it was the thing that defined him more than anything else 
So when he says, I want you to know who I am, he's just saying, Jesus, love me. And there's nothing in this world that marks me more than that. It's what defined him. He could have said, yeah, I love Jesus, but he would have also had to say, but, you know, that love came from Jesus. So what really marks me is that God loved me. See, what defines us more than anything else is God's love for us. It's what makes it possible for us to love him. It's what makes it possible for us to love others and to obey him. And if you base your identity on how well you love God and love other people, then you're gonna be pretty disappointed in this life because none of us are perfect at it, right? None of us get it right all the time. Most of us are like, I wish I did it better. I wish I, I did it more. See, the reality is this. You are defined by God's love for you. God's steadfast, faithful, providential, never-changing love for you. Jesus' love changed John. After the ascension, John, as one of the apostles, begins to spread the gospel. He eventually goes to Ephesus. He risks his life for the gospel. Uh, Church historians tell us, and this doesn't come from scripture, uh, although we do know that, you know, I mean, we can look at uh, first, second, and third John. If you've read those and noticed, John's like a broken record. What does he talk about all the time? Love, 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 love for God, love for God, love for one another. That's kind of the, the, the drumbeat of John. In fact, you can think about it this way. Uh, what's probably the, the most well-known verse of the entire Bible, right? It's probably John 3.16, isn't it? And it says, for God so what? Yeah, it's just like John's a broken record. He's just always talking about love. Why? Again, I think it's because it's become his identity. It's become what really defines him. Now, church uh, historians tell us, and again, this isn't from scripture, but it says that John eventually, you know, he goes to Ephesus, he's arrested by the Roman government, and they attempt to execute him. They, they attempt to kill him, and the way they did it, apparently, uh, is they put him in a cage, and they lowered him into a big vat of, of boiling oil. Like, apparently, sometimes they would do that to people, and they lowered him down, and when they bring him up, he's still alive, and he isn't scalded or anything, and we're told that everybody, the legend says that everybody who witnessed it became a Christian, imagine that, and, uh, but they, Rome uh, couldn't try to execute someone twice, but they wanted to get rid of John, so they exiled him to an island, the island of Patmos. What they wanted to do was get rid of John, get rid of his ministry, get rid of his influence, and so they put him on an island where almost nobody lived, there's no Christians there, there's no church there, there's no fellowship, and they're like, well, he'll just languish there and he'll die there, all alone. Of course, you know what happened. They could take him out of the church, but they couldn't separate him from Jesus. And scripture says that Jesus appeared to John while on the island of Patmos. I just love that. It's like, yeah, they're gonna try to separate me from you? I don't think so. And Jesus appears to him, and while he's there, uh, he writes a book that we know is the book of Revelation. Uh, an amazing book. The whole point of the book of Revelation, by the way, is not about the end times. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It teaches us about Jesus and who he is. Just 
Love the irony in all of that. And he writes this book, and it, a book that's had tremendous influence on the church worldwide. Eventually, though, uh, legend says that John was released, that he outlived the government who tried to silence him, um, that he is uh, now, uh, we're told he was probably somewhere between 89 to 100 years old when he uh, dies. And so now he is uh, a lot, uh, he's, he's out again in cultures, but we're told that he's too old to travel around and so um, churches would want to have John come speak. Why would you want to have John come speak at your church? Well, he's the only living disciple. In fact, it's been some 70 years since Christ ascended. Think about that. So hardly anybody is alive who probably may have, you know, been alive while Jesus was alive, and he's the only one who was there. So they would say, like, you know, John's going to come this weekend and teach us about Jesus. He's not going to, he's going to tell us about hearing Jesus teach firsthand. Can you imagine that? So, like, people are, oh, John's coming. So they would come, and legend says that they would have to carry him to church because he couldn't walk anymore. And they would carry him, and they would set him up in front, and he didn't have a strong voice, so everybody would come forward. I mean, it wasn't like this, or were small house or church, house churches, and they would come up, and they'd sit on the floor, and John would begin to teach, and he would tell them stories about Jesus and stories about what he saw and stories about what he heard and you know, the Sermon on the Mount and water into wine and feeding thousands. Can you imagine that? Like, I saw it. I was there. Question and answer time must have been amazing, right? And they say that, that John would just say over and over, love God, love God, love one another, love God, love one another. It just makes a lot of sense. When you read the Gospel of John, when you read First, Second, and Third John, this was his message again and again and again. He would preach the Gospel. Love God, love God, love God, love one another, love one another. Why? Because that was who John was. It had changed his identity. It was his name tag. He was someone God had loved. If you are a believer, God loves you. And there's nothing about you that is more core to who you are than the fact that God loves you. And notice what he says in Psalm 63. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will what? They will praise you. God's love is greater than your circumstances, your problems, your failures, your illness. It's better than life itself. So you can always praise God. You can always make that choice in any and all circumstances because God's love for you is unchanging and it determines your relationship with him and your standing and your future. You might have walked in here this morning saying, I love God. My question for you as you leave is, are you willing to believe that God loves you? If you have placed your faith in Christ. I want to just read Romans 8, 35 through 39 again as we close. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for this reminder that when we place our faith in your son, we belong to you. And when we belong to you, you have a love for us that can never be taken away. And folks, if if you're in here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ, if you have never trusted in what he has done for you, the complete work of Christ on the cross that forgives your sin through faith. I want to invite you this morning. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to take a membership class. You simply need to believe in the person and work of Christ. And you can do that right now. You can simply declare to the Lord that you trust in Christ. Scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and where does that come from? If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I encourage you, if you've never done that, to do that this morning. Do it right now. To believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. He is God. And Father, I I pray for us this morning. I I pray for all of us who, uh, maybe we came in here this morning a little beat up, a little discouraged, because we have not loved you and not loved others as we ought to. And we know that. We are disappointed in ourselves. Yet we are reminded this morning that that does not determine our standing with you. It's your love for us. It's the complete work of Christ for us. It's the Holy Spirit that is in us. It's that your love has been poured into us. So this morning, Father, we would say, as John said, that we we are people who have been loved by God. That is who we are. That is what defines us. That is what makes us who we are. That is determined our present and our future. And today we thank you for that love. We thank you for your love that is steadfast, that can never be taken away from us. And we rejoice in that today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.